Good afternoon. It's a rainy day this afternoon on the second day of the new year. Nellie is where we are on The Lady in Gold, The Extraordinary Tale of Gustav Klimt's Masterpiece. Portrait of Adele Blockbar. Written by Anne-Marie O'Connor. So here we are, 179. Nellie. As the Nazi elite admired Adele's portrait, her family in Yugoslavia was, grave, is it, was in grave danger. Their only bargaining ship was the shares of the timber company held in banks abroad. In May 1942, Croatian Jews had been declared stateless. Among the few exceptions were those designated honorary Ararians. Most, or sorry, not Ararians, Arians. <laughs> God, I tell you, I think my reading gets worse as I'm getting a little older here. Okay, let me read that again. In May 1942, Croatian Jews had been declared stateless. Among the few exceptions were those designated honorary Aryans, most of them wealthy Jews who had contributed to the Croak cause by handing over valuable property. Some were forced to pledge their loyalty to the Ustasha regime. Authorities were growing impatient with their attempts to gain control over the Gutmann family lumber fortune and its assets held in banks abroad they ordered Victor to travel to Switzerland and to transfer the assets there to Croatian control. Victor would later say he foiled the plan, but soon they ordered him abroad again. They knew he would come back. They were watching his wife and children in Yugoslavia. The anti-Nazi guerrilla partisans, commanded by Josip Broz Tito, sent an emissary to meet with Victor. The partisan emissary urged Victor to join them. He considered it seriously. But what would become of his family? By July, thousands of Jews in the Oshik area had been ordered to a makeshift village in nearby Tenja. The Gutmans were arrested and threatened with deportation. Victor promised to hand over some company shares, and they were freed, at least for the moment, though Victor could, would say he eventually foiled the share transfer. In late August, the makeshift village at Tenja was suddenly deserted. The people had been sent to Jasnovic and Auschwitz. Now Luis and Victor woke up every morning to a macabre world in which anything seemed possible. They heard terrible stories. The Ustasha announced that Serbs could save their lives by reporting to a regional church to convert to Roman Catholicism. Families crowded in. Ustasha officers barred the doors and set the church on fire. Louise tried to keep those stories from these stories from her children, but it was becoming more difficult. The world was closing in on them. One Sunday morning, as poppies carpeted the meadows and sunflowers raised their enormous yellow heads, Nellie heard a troop truck roar into Belish. At the, 
as the gypsy village, sorry, at the gypsy village, it screeched to a halt. Gypsy men were saddling their horses and chopping wood. Women were cooking and hanging laundry in the sun. Soldiers shouted at the gypsies to move to the common. The sol soldiers moved from house to house, yanking the arms of mothers who were still holding babies in dish towels. They pushed out grandfathers, trailed by small, frightened grandchildren, shoving stragglers with rifle butts. Finally, the gypsies stood together, apprehensively blinking in the bright sun. Then the shooting began. Nellie could hear the crackle of automatic weapon fire and the screams. Oh, my God, she thought, her heart pounding. It seemed to last an eternity, though it wouldn't have been more than a few minutes. Then the truck roared away toward Osijek. There was a terrible silence. Then the towns became alive. Crowds of men and women swarmed into the gypsy village. They helped themselves to clothes, silverware, jewelry, tables, and chairs. They haggled over goats, sheep, cows, and the gypsies' beautiful horses. A couple of days later, Nellie wandered into the settlement. She ventured between the houses, eerily abandoned, their doors ajar. There was a trench of fresh earth, and village children pointed to it. There was, That was where the gypsies were buried. The older children skipped away. Nellie stood alone in the stillness. Then Nellie heard a plaintive cheeping. She followed the noise to a passageway between two houses. There she spotted a speck of fluff no bigger than a cotton bowl. It was a tiny chick. The chick huddled against the house. Nellie cupped it in her hands and walked home carefully, whispering to the little orphan not to be afraid. She called her chick Myra and made her a nest in a small bucket so she wouldn't get stepped on. She fed Myra by hand, petting her gently, hoping she would grow up and lay lots of eggs. But Myra grew into a cocky rooster with a luminescent silky tail. He came when Nellie called. This pleased her because Nellie now had little to do. Her world was growing smaller. Nellie only knew bits and pieces of her parents' desperate struggle to survive. Soldiers would show up at the house and her parents would quietly tell her and her brother to go upstairs. Once the soldiers casually strafed... <sighs> sorry, I lost my train here. My... Okay, sorry. Once the soldiers casually strafed a cabinet filled with antique porcelain, after they had gone, her mother knelt down and picked up all the shards of early European porcelain and stored them as carefully as if they were delicate crystal goblets. One night in early May 1943, just before midnight, Nellie was awoken by a truck full of soldiers who arrived at the Gutman Manor. Nellie heard Louise speaking to them outside in her pleasant, melodic Viennese-German. Louise called Nellie and Franz to come at once, and they all boarded the truck. They wouldn't let Nellie take Myra. They led her, they led away her beautiful filly Baba. Nellie and her 
family spent the night in a municipal office. The next morning, they were taken to a police headquarters at Osiak. There, they were herded with dozens of other people into a local school gymnasium. Mothers and fathers were huddled on the floor with frail grandparents, children, and wide-eyed babies. The Gutmans were ordered to crouch down with them. They were told to keep their eyes on the floor for what seemed like hours. Nellie stared at shoes, the lace-up boots of little children, the heels of women, the heavy boot men's boots. Her muscles ached when people involuntarily moved or fell over. The guards shouted or kicked it or kicked them. From her parents' whispered conversations with adults near, near them, Nellie learned that Ustasha was going to hand them over to the Germans. The Germans would take them to Auschwitz. People who went to Auschwitz never returned. A friend of Luis's ran to plead with the local Gestapo chief who had seen the vivacious young baroness around town. Just a few years ago, a man of his background would not, never have stood a chance with a beautiful, stylish aristocrat like Louise. Things were different now. I will help your friend, said the Gestapo officer, told Louise's friend. But will she be nice to me afterward? In the gymnasium, the guards ordered the prisoners to line up to buy their train tickets to Auschwitz. Just then, a door opened and Ustasha officer ordered the Gutmans to get up. Nellie silently filed out of the gymnasium with her family. The other prisoners followed them with their eyes, not knowing if the Gutmans were fortunate or doomed. Nellie believed, her, Nellie believed the friend of her mother saved their lives. But Louise told another story. She was escorted to a majestic old place in Osiak that had once been a convent. There she was shown into an apartment with elegant furnishings and liquor. Here Louise was expected to wait for the Gestapo officer. There, was an, there were other things Louise tried to keep from her children. One day she had opened the door to a cluster of gruff German officers with alcohol in their breath. They pushed past her. Louise ordered Nellie and Franz to play downstairs. Louise set about being the good hostess she was raised to be, making pleasant conversation in her cultivated Viennese, which they answered in homespun country German. Their conversation deteriorated into off-color jokes, conspiratorial guffaws, leering smiles. Once reached, one reached for Louise, and his comrades roared with approval. As Louise endured her drunken rapists, a young, pink-cheeked soldier hung back, clearly shocked by the animal carnality of the scene. He was goaded into taking his turn. When he finished, he looked ashamed. Did you like me just a little bit? He asked Louise, hopefully. Louise knew other women suffered terrifying fates. Roving soldiers locked women, Jews, Serbs, gypsies, into military quarters where they conveniently ignored their doctrine of racial purity. When they finished with these women, they marched them into the woods and shot them. As the alluring Golden Adele was admired by strangers in Vienna, the niece of this glamorous daughter 
of Vienna was at the mercy of passing soldiers. This was war, and women were the spoils. Here's an aside. I don't think I'll ever be able to look at that painting again and not think of it and look at it differently. The next chapter is the Immendorf Castle. It was a warm, blustery day in the spring of 1943 when the youngster baron of Schloss Immendorf, Johannes von Frudenthal, looked out of one of the castle's glorious towers and watched trucks pull into the courtyard. At ten, Johannes, the inquisitive pet of the family, wasn't much of a baron yet. He still played hide-and-seek with his four brothers and sisters in the nooks and crannies of the castle turrets, imagining himself a dragon-slaying knight in one of the family's old suits of armor. The eagle's nest view of the castle took in, took in the mountains northwest of Vienna, the Danubian River Valley white, sorry, the Danubian Rav, River Valley wine country and one of Austria's oldest inhabited regions. By 1943, the Schloss Immendorf had long passed its days of feudal glory, though the little baron's father and his young wife had restored the gracefully turreted marvel. Outside were war, scarcity, and other terrible things, but Schloss Immendorf remained the family refuge. On this cloudy day, Johannes had wandered upstairs looking for his favorite kitten when he heard motors outside. Most strangers came in uniform. Castles were commandeered to house Nazi leaders to, or SS officers. His father, Baron Rudolf Frudenthal, Frudenthal, was an officer in the Wehrmacht. A succession of German officers lived under his roof. Some were gruff and aloof, others were kind to Johannes and played the piano with pleasure filling the house with Schubert, Beethoven, and Mozart, while Johannes's mother set a place for them. But the strangers downstairs that day wore dark suits, not uniforms. Their workmen brought enormous boxes and panels into the timber-beamed timber entry hall and carried them up the spiral stairs. Johannes watched them wrestle an enormous rolled-up tapestry into the attic. The men uncoiled a long rope and hoisted wooden crates up the stairs, and Johannes jumped out of the way as they struggled balancing paintings and stacking them one by one against the wall in the tower. They disappeared downstairs. Johannes examined the paintings. The one in front was a large sorry, the one in front was as large as Johannes an enormous tree in bloom set against a riot of flowers. Nothing, is a, nothing as exciting as his father's paintings of men on horses raising their swords in, in battle with Napoleon. Another painting had some naked women on it. In it. <laughs> I don't know why my eyes do that. Another painting had some naked women in it. Johannes began to pull the other canvases away from it so he could see but they were heavy, and the whole stack began to slide. The little baron hung on, trying to prevent the paintings from falling down. A big hand reached down from above and steadied the paintings. Johannes looked up, his father. 
These are important paintings, not toys, his father told him sternly. They were painted by a great Austrian artist, Gustav Klimt. His father told Johannes to leave them alone. The paintings were in <clears throat> the paintings were in the castle to protect them from air raids. The paintings had been in a big exhibition in Vienna. Baron Frudenthal had been given a choice. Either store the paintings or house war refugees, which could mean unruly SS officers pushed back at Stalingrad. The Baron chose the art. There were other eyes watching, the comings and goings at Immendorf. At nearby Hollenbrunn, a large and, infam and infamous SS detachment imprisoned Jewish slave laborers. They sent the prisoners to Immendorf to grow food. One of them was Anna Lenji from Hungary. To Anna, Baron Frudenthal was very human and tried to do whatever he could, but of course he also was under the supervision of the Nazi superintendent so his power of help was very limited. But he was not like the leaders of the two previous camps who had made her march naked in public with her husband and the other prisoners, which I thought was horrible. At Schloss Immendorf, the Baron sent books at, to the tiny unheated hut Lenji shared with 12 prisoners, which meant too much so much to us because it was a testimony to the fact that we're still humans and not only beasts as we were treated there. By the time Allied bombs rained down in Vienna in 1944, Austrian masterpieces, many of them stolen, would be tucked away in the cavernous one-time monastery of gaming or in the Schlonberg Castle, not far from Schloss Immendorf. The Austrian gallery's Fritz no Novotny sent a typed memo reporting that a painting by Oskar Kokoschka was being held for safekeeping, along with Klimt's second portrait of Adele in the stronghold of the massive 12th century Weinern castle in the eastern Bergenland. Degenerate or not, Kokoschka was still Austrian. At Schloss Immendorf, Johannes and his brothers and sisters played near the paintings, shrieking with laughter as they ran past Klimt's golden apple tree, avoiding crates that might contain statues. Their father had warned them of what would happen if they damaged the Klimt's. Last chapter for this reading, The Child in the Chapel. Croatian authorities sent the Gutmans to the notorious Svaska Sesta political prison in Zagreb. The prison was filled with anti-Nazi partisans. It had a small adjoining hospital with, where partisans who had been tortured could be revived for further interrogation. By 1943, Josip Broz Tito and the partisan guerrillas he commanded were strong enough to be to seriously threaten the Ustasha and the Nazis. They fought fearlessly, sustaining high casualties, but taking a heavy toll on Axis forces. The woods near Belize were a partisan stronghold. For Nelly, now 14, the prison brought the close 
family life she had always wished for. She felt safe. Her father spent hours with her, reading and discussing Goethe's Faust, teaching her math and languages. Nellie finally had her parents' full attention. One Croatian prisoner had been a guard at Jasnovac. The croat said guards at Jasnovac. Jasnovac, I think that's how you say it, Jasnovac, were frightening and brutal. They killed prisoners with axes, sledgehammers, and a special knife they invented shaped like the crescent moon of the Turks called the Svorske. I can't say it in the way they're supposed to. It, the Serb cutter. The Croat had been a provincial policeman. He was shocked by the stupid. <laughs> he was shocked by the stupid, illiterate guards and the ghastly slaughter. He fired off letters to the Ustasha government, telling what he saw. Surely they would share his outrage. Instead, they had arrested. They had arrested him and sent him here. Nellie learned that for Jews, the prison was supposed to be a way station. Jewish families were appear, would appear overnight. They were locked behind the iron grill work of the small hospital shrine from which gilded saints had once gazed out mercifully. One morning, Nellie, as Nellie walked by the chapel, she saw the new group, a new group of families had arrived. They were rail thin. They had been stripped of their belongings and were dressed in rags. A father was hugging a small child. The child was only five or six, hollow-eyed and listless, with parchy hair, patchy hair, sorry, with patchy hair and limbs hanging like matchsticks. This child was barely clinging to life. When anyone walked by, the father raised the dying child in his arms with, behind the grillwork, his imploring eyes begging each passerby to help. The father must have been starving, too. He looked so weak that he seemed barely capable of raising the child, yet he did. The sight of the suffering child horrified Nellie. She would have liked to bring soup or water. It seemed incredible that prison guards could walk by laughing and smoking, ignoring the desperate man and his feeble child. Nellie cringed as she walked by the chapel, and her breath quickened, but she was unable to stop herself from looking up into the pleading father's eyes. When Nellie woke the next morning, the man and his child had vanished, along with the rest of the Jewish prisoners. The chapel was again the empty, silent sanctuary, that had once held statues of Mother Mary and Jesus, their faces frozen with mercy. And that is the end of this reading. Next we will be reading a chapter called The Castle of the First Reichsmarschall. And the Partisans. And possibly two more. We'll see how it goes. So thank you for listening, and we are now on page 187. I hope you're enjoying the story. It's a bit rough, but 
we're getting towards the end. Thanks again.